Hey, welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I am your host and we are breaking from our regular scheduled programming to bring you a special episode on gardening for wildlife. And I'm doing that because coming up this weekend uh, is a special gardening for wildlife event in Bisbee, Arizona. And I'm not going to tell you any more about that because it is all in this episode. And uh, uh, I, you know, there, there's nothing I enjoy more than, you know, working on my, my little one acre lot here, uh, trying to create better wildlife habitat and more draw more wildlife to my yards, whether that's bird feeders or pollinator gardens or bat boxes or bluebird boxes. I really enjoy it all. And I take a great deal of pride uh, in the wildlife that I attract in my yard. I keep wildlife lists, yard lists of everything I've seen, you know, and they're a magnet on my fridge. And, and uh, you know, the kids and family and I love uh, finding a new species and getting to add it to that list. Just the other day, we found a yellow rump warbler, which is one I should have seen by now. And I kept waiting and kept waiting. Finally spotted one in the yard the other day and got to add it to the list. Exciting stuff for me anyway. And I know for a lot of you listeners out there as well. So I want you to enjoy this episode, but before we get into that, let's quickly just do a couple announcements and let's see. All right, coming up first off as well this weekend is the dove hunting opener. This is a day that hunters across the country look forward to it. It's the official marker for the start of hunting season. I'm excited about it. I'm going to be down in Yuma with backcountry hunters and anglers where we are going to be holding a cook-off with some great prizes. We are going to have a dove hunt that morning, a group hunt. Space is limited, so make sure you get registered right away. And following all of that greatness, in the evening, we are going to be having a pint night. There's a lot going on. You should also keep an eye peeled because Yuma Valley Rod and Gun Club is holding their annual barbecue this weekend as well down there in Yuma. So almost too much good stuff, but it is all good stuff. I'll have links for all of this below. Okay, let's see further. What else we got? So come down, hunt with us, uh, win that cook-off and some great prizes, and then let's go celebrate at a pint night. We've also got on the next weekend, let's see, that's going to be August, September 9th and 10th, um, the Becoming an Outdoors Woman uh program is happening and uh, I will have a link to where you get more information on that. I've told you all about becoming an outdoors woman uh, in the past and we have a full episode on becoming an outdoors woman. It is a huge event. Uh, It's held twice a year. Uh, It's like a hundred gals, all kinds of great classes. I am going to be teaching a small game processing and cooking class um, that weekend at that program. So yeah, if you're going, I'd love to have you in my class. Finally, We've got registration open for our annual family squirrel camp. That's going to be September 29th, 30th, and October 1st. Space is limited. Uh, It is a great weekend. It's very casual, very loose. Everybody has a good time. I've said it before. I'll say it again. It is my favorite event of the year. Uh, Let's see. We're going to be holding the same space as last year at the base of Mormon Mountain. You'll get that exact location after you register, and I'll have a link below for that. This year, we are going to have a wild game potluck dinner. We are going to, of course, do some squirrel hunting. We will have processing and cooking demos for squirrels. We will have a falconry presentation, which I am super excited about, too. I get to see my buddy Nate fly his birds, and I just can't wait. So I hope you're there, too. 
And again, look for links to register. In the meantime, enjoy this episode on Gardening for Wildlife. Thanks for listening. All right, we're we're here today to talk about National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife program. Um, I'm excited about it because this is something that I really enjoy, and I'm always working on the wildlife habitat in my yard, and I have my Garden for Wildlife side proudly displayed right down at the front of my driveway. So we have kind of uh, experts here in three different areas, uh, and um, I think we'll just get to those instead of me just laying it out. So let's just start with some some introductions, and, and let's uh, start with you there, Shubber. Who are you? How do you relate to all this? Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, so uh, Shubber Ali, I'm the uh, CEO of Garden for Wildlife Incorporated, which is a company we've just spun out from the National Wildlife Federation. NWF actually owns us. Uh, and then there's um, some that is part for the employees uh, and then investors who are coming in. But we set up a separate company to leverage all of the ex- expertise and knowledge of the last 50 years of work done with Garden for Wildlife, the program, but to make it easier for consumers to actually get native plants and help them support putting those in their yards. And so we created a business around this uh, a couple of years ago. And then last year, uh, the board had agreed to spin it out and asked me to come in and run as CEO since I was part of the original work that led to the creation of this uh, e-commerce platform three years ago. Awesome. Thanks for being here. All right, Val, let's move on to you. Who are you, Val? Uh, Hi, Uh, my name is Val Morrill. I'm a retired federal wildlife uh, conservation manager. And uh, after retirement, I wanted to get involved in all of the things that were um, more of the volunteer basis and had the good fortune to join the Arizona Wildlife Federation Board, let me think, 2008. Uh, And through that time, I was able to focus as a board member on projects that were near and dear to me, including the the concept of gardening for wildlife and and making that more um, available, attainable for people in in Arizona. So that's been, uh, as a board member, something I've focused on throughout my tenure. And then uh, I'm looking forward to the fact that Arizona Wildlife Federation has matured so much in these past couple of years and have us now the staff expertise that's come on board, such as yourself, Michael. Oh, thanks, Val. And uh, looking <laughs> for it to uh, be able to really expand and grow now that we have that kind of level of uh, staff attention. Awesome. And I'll add that Val is one of the most lovely personalities on our board of directors and absolutely <laughs> valued by everyone. All right, Carmen, how about you? Well, um, I live here in Bisbee, Arizona. I've always registered my yards with the National Wildlife Federation. A couple of years ago, the Bisbee Bloomers that do garden tours um, asked me to be on their on their tour, and I had a you know certified wildlife habitat sign in the yard. Everyone thought it was really mysterious. Like, how did I get it? I must be this like psychic kind of PhD kind of girl. But so I thought. I would kick it up a notch that year during the tour because I thought, you know what? People need to know about gardening for wildlife, how we can help our pollinators. So I called Valerie and I said, Val, I want you to come up here like you're my own wildlife biologist. 
I want you to wear, I want your binoculars, a flycatcher, books, shorts, <laughs> boots, everything. I want you to look like you're a field biologist. And we got a lot of materials, magazines, the wildlife magazines from that the National Wildlife Federation puts out. And we had so many handouts. And when people would come into my yard, I'd talk, I'd just be like this yeller, like, we have a wildlife biologist, come here and learn about gardening for wildlife. And Valerie just had long lines of people wanting to talk to her about gardening for wildlife. Awesome. We had fun. We, we had some fun. You know, where there were fun things like little signs that says, ask us about the sex life of figs. <laughs> and the fig wasp that, you know, then is the pollinator sure. involved there. So, you know, we we, uh, we had some fun with it, huh, Carmen? Yeah, we did a good job, Val. I'm sure you got lots of attention. Well, tell you what, let's start. Let's start at the highest level. Shubert, can you tell us about Garden for Wildlife on the national level? Uh, what is it? Where did it come from? That sort of stuff. Yeah, so Garden for Wildlife, uh, this is actually the 50th anniversary. It started in 1973. Um, and the program has been, for the majority of its history, has been really focused on education, which is mm -hmm. how do you make people more aware of like exactly the things that uh, Carmen and Val were talking about with the folks there in, in Bisbee about, you know, what is the importance of pollinators? How do pollinators help with the, the plants, but also with the birds? Because they, there's a very clear connection. And this is actually how I got involved with it as well, which I'll come back to later. But um, providing education and then, of course, launch the Certified Wildlife Habitat Program, which uh, Carmen has in her yard. I have the sign out in front of my yard. I did that about two and a half years ago after we moved here and um, got people to understand it doesn't take a lot but it does take some specific effort to actually get a certified habitat. So the certified habitat program has been around for decades. We found, and actually we just interviewed recently for, uh, I think an article, it may have just come out or it's coming out soon. Uh, one of the earliest certifiers, I think it was number 92. Um, and to put that in context, there are now, I believe 284,000 certified habitats in the U S um, that have been done over the, the pre previous decades. Uh, this includes primarily residences, but also schoolyards, places of worship, uh, even some corporate settings. Uh, I believe that uh, about five years ago, NWF did a partnership with Subaru where they put certified habitats in at dealerships across the country. Um, but the, the idea is to get people to both recognize that a place has dedicated its, its uh, some of its land and purposes towards protecting and bringing back and supporting wildlife because they've lost so much native habitat over the last 200 plus years as we've terraformed our country into essentially a, a golf course. And mm -hmm. this is part of like, let's move it the other direction. Let's try to bring it back. And it's, um, there's, there's a number of key criteria, which we can go about in a minute, but that's the program sets it up and then people can certify their own property. Um, and then, you know, of course get signage and the rest. Outstanding. So yeah, it's, it's not only in, well, in, in my mind, it it's kind of works in two different fashions. One, it encourages people to create wildlife habitat, and which, I mean, the obvious, the, the benefits of that are, is, are obvious. But also, I think it 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 spreads the word. I mean, I love yes. having the sign in my yard, and I'm sure other people have noticed it. And I'm sure they went home and, and you know, Googled Garden for Wildlife and, and uh, you know, hopefully inspired them to do the same thing. Well, actually, the data supports that specifically. So I believe the number is, and I might be getting this wrong, but I believe the number is 
if somebody certifies their yard, their neighbor is 60% more likely to then also become a certified habitat. And it has a cascading effect, right? Which is, is a key part of this. This is why the signage is so valuable. And it, you know, it really shows what's interesting we're finding here in the Virginia, Maryland area, which has both a, a demographic of homeowners who have kind of more of an environmental lean toward them, but then also it's it's a, it's like a certain type of yard that, that is around here. But what I'm starting to see now and also in talking with realtors is they're actually putting it in their listings. So, which is an interesting new twist on this is that people are actually looking for that as a differentiator that my house is a certified habitat. Mm-hmm. That's so, Michael, can mm-hmm. Carmen tell a funny story about the f- first time she put up her sign? Absolutely. Have at it, Carmen. <laughs> I assume you know Carmen, what she's talking the, about. <laughs> this is the one in Yuma when you put one up in Yuma? I was so proud the day I got my sign, all right, <laughs> and my little certificate. So I'm going into my front yard. I'm pounding it in. And the next day, my neighbors across the street, I put a sign in. And um, it said, nuts don't fall too far from the tree. I had a little squirrel with nuts. And that's how effective I was my first go around. All right. And Michael, I'm so happy you mentioned about the uh, fact that you were a certified wildlife habitat because about every board meeting, I'm like, okay, this is something, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is or your, you know, action out there. Every single one of us with AWF need to be certified wildlife habitat. Sure. You know, I I was uh, into my 40s before I, I got my first mortgage. But um, that was one of the first things and most exciting things for me about buying a home is is having my own little laboratory, you know, to work on my own habitat and, you know, and attract as many as much diversity of, of species as, as I could. And, and yeah, that yeah. that uh, Garden for Wildlife was certainly a, a big, big part of my inspiration there. And so looking at. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say, and, and Schubert, the the. Uh, thing that's fun here of course is just like you were saying what you've had with the different kinds of interest and it could be here as easy as somebody's got uh you know plants on and a a bird feeder on their back patio or on their balcony window you know kind of thing and and that counts just as much as the person that has the huge estate it it does and there are four there are just four key criteria. Technically, there's five criteria that you have to meet in order to certify your, your property as a certified habitat. And you just hit on a part of it, Val, which is you need to have, you know, sources of food. And so a bird feeder is certainly helpful, but also native plants that can attract the pollinators because it's their offspring. It's the caterpillars and those sort of things that are really critical for the baby birds. And that's that part of the cycle that was broken as well. Then you have to have a source of water. It could be a bird bath. It could be a pond, whatever you have. So you can put a bird bath on your, on your balcony even. And then... It's a place to raise young and shelter are two other key criteria. So, you know, shrubs, bushes, whatever is fine. Um, and then a birdhouse or something is always an easy place to raise young. And the last one, though, which is really important that um, I think gets overlooked, but, but it's, it's important to stress is sustainable practices. And what I mean by that is, you know, it doesn't do you any good to go and plant a bunch of native plants, put in a bird bath, do all this other stuff, and then spray Roundup all over your yard because, mm-hmm. um you know, it, it's kind of defeating the purpose. And so it's, it's about like, you know, being an, a bit of an ecological steward, but you're right. You don't need to have an estate. You can do this. In fact, a good friend of mine uh, in Chicago just got a loft uh, right inside the loop. So he's in proper city, Chicago. And I said, Hey, you need to get a planter for your balcony and then buy a three pack of plants from us, which he did. He put them in back in May 
And then he sent me a text message uh, last month, early last month. And he was so excited and he was excited for his son as well. Who's I think nine years old now. And he said, he just saw his first monarch and he has a picture of this monarch on his balcony and I'm like inner city Chicago. And I'm like, that's it right there. You got it. You can do this anywhere. <laughs> and I love to show things like, you know, inner city, how the skyscrapers actually mimic the cliffs that peregrine falcons are used to mm-hmm. being in. So, you know, have a broad mind about it. It's really interesting how wildlife adapts to us in, in, in some days, some ways, good ways. I uh, I really like that one of the uh, how do I say this the, the the checklist of things that you can do to your yard to get it to qualify um, or certified. One of them was keeping your cat indoors, which I, to me is is very important. Um, and while we do have a cat, Puddles, um, she uh, she she you know occasionally will try to slip out, um, and I always make that experience for her terrible as terrible <laughs> as I can um, and uh, she's she's actually really good at not going out but she sits at the window watches the birds watches the bugs because we have feeders and all, all kinds of things but um, my my dog Edward he does have the run of the yard and uh, he oh, he's not much of a problem though because like even the squirrels and chipmunks have figured out that he is not a not a threat because he will just point at them he's a pointer <laughs> a german shorthead pointer and he'll just he'll be on a lookout on the porch and he's just frozen you know pointing at a squirrel five feet away on the feeder and the squirrel's just going about its business but exactly so what, what are some of the other things <laughs> yeah yeah what are some of the other things folks can do to their their property or apartment or wherever they live to uh, it, to certify it? Here's something huge that I had to have, like, traumatized into my head. Don't trim your yard up. Let things hang. Let things, you know, give give uh, the birds, the, the pollinators, the insects, your lizards, a place to hide. And, you know, for us out mm-hmm. here, it's like big fawns or bushes that hang over we have to be a little careful because of fire danger but you you mm-hmm. still can leave a lot of your shrubbery pretty messy and and now when people ask me why my house my yard looks a little messy i tell them it's it has a purpose yeah you there know you go. <laughs> it, it's a it's a good point i think one of the things that um hurt native plants for a long time was actually the naming of the plants uh because Many of these plants, because they were native, so they were the ones that were everywhere around here when, when the people first came here, is many of them are called weeds, right? So there are lots of really beautiful flowers and perennial plants that have something, something weed as their name. I'm like, why is it called that? It's actually a pretty flower. It's a pretty plant. It's a nice shrub, whatever else. And it turns people off from saying, why would you want to put Joe Pye weed in your yard? Or why would you want to put sneeze weed in your yard or something? And uh, because they're really good. But what's also, I think, something people need to realize is you can actually still have a very nice looking laid out garden with clusters of different native plants that, you know, the, this landscape designers do this all the time. They come up with a really nice look. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people feel like it, it, what you're going to get, which I've actually done in my yard because I do like the wild look of it, is that you're going to take a handful of random seeds, throw them out there, and then it's just going to explode with, with flowers, which you can do if you want that kind of truly wild look. But you can also have a very orderly look and still have native plants. It's not an either or. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I like to I have a garden out here, which I've done a poor job on this year. I mean, we've been here a year and a half. And quite honestly, that's not enough time to get your house in order. And <laughs> I still have just a laundry list of house projects. But my garden is one of them that I enjoy the most. And again, this year, I didn't get to it the way I wanted to. But I like to incorporate, you know, out here in the West, we still have logs laying around from the primary forest that were here. Because I mean, if it doesn't burn up, it doesn't rot. So uh, I like to incorporate those big hollow logs. Uh, and I, I create my own rock piles that I think are really nice looking. And, you know, for me, you know, with, with a type A kind of anal retentive personality, I want everything just the way I want it. But I can pull this off. I can do this with natural materials um, and make a really nice looking, you know, wildlife garden, you know, with water features and rock piles and logs yeah. that is still yeah. very appealing to the eye. So, Michael, what have you seen? What, have, have you had any response to what you've got so far? Oh, my but gosh. Yes. I've done a really good job bringing wildlife into my yard. I'm really excited <laughs> about it. Um, you know, I, I've got bantail pigeons at my at my uh, my bird bath every morning. I've got lizards living in my rock piles. Um you know, the, the birds here are just great. I keep a, a wildlife camera out on a couple salt licks in my yard, uh, which eventually by the end of this year, I will have a, a probably a 40 gallon uh, drinker sunk into the ground down there as well. But I get uh, foxes, gray foxes regularly, raccoons, coyotes, um, mule deer, elk, uh, you know, a whole gamut of uh, And granted, I live up here in these kind of monotypic pine Ponderosa pine forests, which are not the most diverse place in the world, but uh, everything I get up here is native, except for the occasional feral cat, um, our neighbor's <laughs> cat, I should probably say, just just free roaming outside pet cats. But I'll get those on my camera occasionally. But uh, but yeah, I get a, a whole host of wildlife up here. My goal is a bear and a lion. That's what I really want. You know, one of the things that might be worth mentioning, particular to Arizona, is you know it's is a unique setting. You're up there, kind of in the uh, scrub pine, maybe I would say. And of course, I'm in Yuma, which has an annual rainfall of two inches a year. <laughs> you know, right. I, we've been in the 116s this summer. Um, it's a harsh environment, but of course, it has its own very well adapted environment here. And because of all of the different terrain and, and, um, uh, Weather patterns we get through, you know, having the two seasons that we get with the monsoon and then the winter storms, it's created a state in which we're like something like the seventh largest, but we're the third most diverse. And you have all of these different, you know, really cool, like Carmen's in kind of that transition zone with Bisbee. And, uh, you know, we have a really interesting state to cover and, and help people figure out what does it mean to be native in the in the habitat you're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Shubber, what does it look like across the nation as far as participation? I assume gardening is going to be a bigger thing uh, in the east than it is out here. But what, how does the how do the numbers break down? Yeah, the, yeah. the, the biggest um, group of gardening that we see just even based on our own uh, customer data over the last few years has been very much concentrated in the New England, mid-Atlantic region, some in the Midwest. You do see a lot of gardening out on the West Coast, but it's a fundamentally different set of like ecotypes of plants and the rest, kind of to, to Val's point, is you get this very different diversity, um, you know, with changes in elevation, um, the, the climate moisture and all the rest up in, say, the Pacific Northwest versus even Northern versus Central or Southern California, Arizona, all different kinds of plants. 
but you do see lots of, of gardening more toward, I think the, the coastal areas. Um, the, sorry, what was the second part of the question again? No, this is kind of how it broke down across the, the nation, yeah. you know, so, is so it has the popularity of the program. Yeah. So uh, that, that, I think that maps as well to, um, as these areas have more, uh, of a range of kind of good substitute native plants for the things they were expecting to get in the traditional garden center, mm-hmm. like, you know, the Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever, which are pretty flowering plants. It's an easy swap out once they become aware of it to say, okay, I will buy some native plants. And I'll do this instead. And I'll get my, you know, orange butterfly milkweed and I'll get my, you know, um, uh, little blue stems and my this and that, whatever else. It's a little bit harder out in like, your neck of the woods, I'd say, or in um, mm-hmm. you know, certain parts of Southern California, because while there's a variety of, of kind of drought tolerant desert like plants and the rest that are out there, people have this image in their head still that we have to help to train them away from of a garden means. I fill in the blank here, right? It's a certain amount of turf, for instance. So I've got to have my, you know, um, Kentucky bluegrass or my Bermuda grass or whatever else. And I got to have pretty flowers, which are those showy annuals that they'll get at the garden center. Those we all know are invasive species. And so for them mm-hmm. to make the leap from that to, I want a drought tolerant yard that can still be pretty, but it's going to be different kind of flowering and it's going to be a different kind of, you know, look to it there. It's, it's a slow, but it's happening mind ship. It'll take some time. Um, yeah. which is, so instead, what they'll do is they'll spend a lot of money on their water bill watering, you know, something <laughs> that should never have been there. Sure, sure. Hey, hey Michael, um, I, I, can I? Because uh-huh. what I think would be interesting to kind of tie into what Schubert was saying is that, you know, here in Arizona, we recognize it's a it's been a very slow process, uh, and some of that being people coming from the east want to recreate what they left, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, as it gets better, and I, I think, you know, we've slowly in, been making progress, but, um, you know, uh, for example, I guess, you know, I get to do a lot of workshops and and um, sessions with either like the master gardeners being brought in board. We do, uh, AWF has a program you may not know of called Bo Becoming an Outdoors Woman. And it's all about having women empowered in the outdoors and they want to garden with their kids. So they want to, you know, participate in, in um, having nature. So having this opportunity for women to get uh, this kind of empowerment has been a big part. And, you know, Carmen had me come do a workshop in Bisbee. And uh, so that's helped. But I'll tell you, it's really what we're learning is how much more you're benefiting when you're working with a community at, and it's exponentially a greater gain than if you were doing like I've been doing of the onesie twosie here and there that's that's come on board as an individual. So I know both are important, but that's been a big find of seeing what Bisbee's taught us. So I need to let each of you know, yesterday we were certified as a, a community wildlife habitat officially. Where's, Outstanding. where's your champagne? Well, I should have brought some to the table. All right. um, well, let, let me set this up. Let me set this up real quick because this is definitely where I wanted to get. You know, while I'm very proud of my yard uh, and all the work I've done for wildlife habitat, Carmen has taken it to the next level, uh, the community <laughs> level. So let's go ahead and just with that, jump into this, Carmen, and tell us about what you've been working on. Uh, 
you know, the, the National Wildlife Federation has a very nice template for how you can achieve, you know, legitimately become a community wildlife habitat. So you have to do things like outreach and education, and you have to have so many certified habitats. Uh, we had a, a hundred when I looked for when we got certified, we and we had like 138 points or something um, for our population size. But um, we went to the city and asked for them to bless us, and they ended up giving us a two-acre park to reclaim with native plants. And that, wow. that has, we've all been cranking our belts in because each time we go out there, we're sweating so much and it's so hot and we're working so hard. But we have like over 360 plants in there and there's about, I guess about 60 different kinds of plants. So um, it, it's, it's pretty awesome and it's gonna be on our tour this Saturday. The, the other thing that we've been doing is we worked really closely, not just with the city. You know, we wrote grants. I think we brought in about seven funders. I mean, really small funds, but um, probably about $16,000, $17,000, but enough to get us started. We had community help, like the Arizona Water Services came in and redug our water lines because to get these guys started thank god because it hasn't rained we needed to put in a drip system and then mm -hmm. uh, and then an another afterthought was oh my god javelina you know so the city came in and put um fencing all the way around the area that we were working within you know and we planted mostly javelina and deer resistant plants and okay. this thing's only been going for five months, but it's it's drop dead gorgeous. And people that walk, it brings neighbors together. People are walking around with their dogs and going, this is so beautiful. Because that park had been neglected for so long. But, you know, you can't lose with the message. Let's help our pollinators. You know, let's let's stay with what belongs here so we're not watering. Spending a lot of money, mm -hmm. a lot of effort. And you're so, hitting on. Sorry, go ahead, Bob. No, go ahead. I was, oh, thank you. I was going to say you're just hitting on two really critical things that are, I think, need to be stressed a lot more for people. One is that because I actually heard this question earlier today at a lunch meeting I was at. Somebody asked about, well, you know, if you want to put these native plants in this area, are you going to have to run water out and do all these other things? And I said, well. Um, for where we live, the answer is no, because they're native. They evolved to be in the kind of climate we have here. And so that's why you don't want a, a turf lawn or something else, per se, because you have to keep it alive artificially in a place that's not meant to be. But native plants already do that well. But the other part is on the pollinator side, you know, a lot of people don't realize how much of the food we eat relies on those pollinators. It's really that simple. And everybody hears about the, you know, collapsing honeybee. Uh, industry, which, by the way, are from Europe, so it's a separate invasive species issue. But, but there, when when we raise those and use them to pollinate, you know, almond fields or any other kind of you know crop, they're also competing with the with the native pollinators. We need more native plants out there to support all of them because our food depends on it. And for us, we knew we had to run a drip system that wasn't going to be forever. Um, but we know that. When we're planting plants, we're putting them where they didn't choose to be. 
So any kind of little head start. Yep. Um, oh, they also move. They move themselves. It's interesting. I've just noticed this with some I put in my yard. It's my black-eyed Susans are migrating across the yard to where they really want to be. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so, Carmen, think, where are you? Go ahead, Val. You got the floor. Well, I, there was a couple just little points that I, I think I wanted to emphasize here, too, partly of what Bisbee has done with relevance to Arizona Wildlife Federation is that, you know, they represent a different uh, audience for us than our traditional hunting and fishing uh, outdoors person. And it's been, you know, the big tent that National Wildlife Federation is and that uh, Arizona Wildlife Federation is making the moves, you know, in that regard, I think is important. And then the other thing that's unique for Bisbee comes to what within our our affiliate, and I assume this is true for NWF as a whole, is uh, uh, looking at our justice and equity issues. And uh, the area around Bisbee is considered to be an underserved population. So as we've been exploring more justice and equity issues, this has been, you know, part of that expansion and, uh, you know, bringing wildlife is something for everyone. Outstanding. Hey, Val, I'm so glad you said that because um, one of the things that when I came in this year uh, to lead up Garden for Wildlife, uh, one of the things we set up was a program, which we call Garden for Wildlife Gives, because the name we wanted was Planted Forward, but apparently that's trademarked, so we can't have it. But um, the idea was that every time customers buy plants from us, we set aside the same number of plants to donate to exactly the kinds of places you're talking about. So we've set up community gardens now completely free where we provide all the native plants in places like uh, inner city Baltimore. We've done it up in Detroit, Michigan. We actually have launched a, a place on our site where, you know, not-for-profits and community groups can apply to get them, and we'll just ship the plants directly to them, and then they can put them in the ground with their own local volunteers. But it's exactly what you're saying is, you know, the pollinators and the, and the, the birds don't care what your zip code is. They don't care how affluent your, your neighborhood is. They need to go where they need to go. And equally, the people who can benefit from their presence should all be able to benefit from their presence and not just people who have an estate or some, you know, uh, upscale neighborhood with a, with a, you know, community garden built in or something else. So I, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, we, we want to help wherever we can in doing that too. So I've been working on a little motto here and I, you know, I've been spending a lot of time driving and on my own and this may not work, but I came up with this, how to make it work. I don't quite know yet, but it's garden for you. And wildlife, too. What do you think? What do you think? Oh, man, that's a seller. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Carmen. I'm going to register the trademark, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> so, well, Shelby, you talked this? about... When you garden for you, you're gardening for... No. For two. Okay. <laughs> Carmen, Not we'll save Carmen. that. We'll, We'll save okay, that for well, the glass we'll of champagne. Sorry. <laughs> All right, Shubber. Um, I was, yeah. yeah. Um, while people back east are very fortunate to be able to purchase their their native plants um, through your program, we don't have that available to us here in Arizona, uh, correct? And Not so, yet. Carmen, yeah. where? 
Not yet. Okay. I, I'd love to see that. Um, but I, I understand the, the difficulty is we have such a di- diverse range of ecosystems, elevation. That's, and that, that, That's not a problem in itself necessarily. You know, we, we find local okay. growers. We just added a grower in Colorado, for instance, which gave us four more states there. Um, because growers can grow because they use greenhouses for different uh settings within the same state Mm -hmm. so we're able to do that once we know what the collection is we want we simply tell them it's just about whether or not they can propagate those particular plants all right well i I will certainly look forward to that but in the meantime carmen where are you getting your plants uh, on the community level there no actually (laughs) we we go to tucson there's two places i can't think of the other name but spadefoot nursery and their plants are native i mean great and so that's Probably Desert Survivors. Does that sound right? Yeah, that group, Desert, that, Survivors. Desert Survivors. Yeah. yeah, they're really big too oh, yeah. for this area. And they have a lot of traffic in there. So I yeah. took them a bunch. To me, I took them a bunch of those little uh, Garden for Wildlife cards. You know, that has all the mm-hmm. little criteria on it, and gave it to them and said, "Give this out to to people that come to your nursery." And now I think that would be a great marketing. Uh, campaign you know for nurseries that are only dealing in data is to give them a card so you start planning you got it all right so you you are officially certified now in bisbee we're official um tell tell us about this celebration oh we're gonna have um well here's a cool thing that we did we have about 16 partners you know people that give us either um newspaper space or let us be at the farmer's market or actually to give us funds. Um, but this year we courted the Bisbee bloomers that only do pretty uh, garden tours. And we asked them, please, let's just do gardens that are only registered and certified as wildlife habitat gardens with N- NWF. So each of our gardens, and I think there's nine or 10 of them, are certified and that's what we're advertising and this isn't our program it's a partnership with another program so they're having a wildlife garden tour but the day before we're having all of our sponsors all of you will have gotten an invitation um and it's to thank our sponsors to kind of celebrate the 100th anniversary of Arizona Wildlife Federation, because that's been one of our mm-hmm. partners, and to celebrate our new certification as a community, to thank our sponsors, and to um, and to do a tour of this two-acre vista. Holy cremoli. And, and I think we're the only ones, I think, but you could find out for me, Schober. We might be the only one that has a cemetery registered as a wildlife <laughs> habitat oh that's great well, you know although you gave me an idea there coming i'm like that would be the most obvious place to create habitats right you, know, you could get it, instead of plastic flowers <laughs> you have natives yeah, yeah. Can, can i admit something here that's a little embarrassing okay. but keep in mind i was a small child and as a small child, like like many small children, I had a fascination with reptiles and amphibians. So I would catch lizards and snakes, and I would bring them home. Um, <laughs> but in order to, to keep them, 
<laughs> no, no. Um, I, I, I would keep them as little prisoners, though, in, in glass boxes all over my room. But uh, gosh, I shouldn't have even brought this up. This is embarrassing. But we had a cemetery <laughs> up the, the road. You're okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I would drawer. visit. I would visit that cemetery and I would pick up uh, the plastic flowers off the graves. And none of them were like brand new or anything, right? Um, and of course, I would take the flowers off. And then I would have all this great greenery to build terrariums out of for, for my little <laughs> captives. I was a child, so please don't judge me. But I was just being a, Wait, a resourceful kid. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I just saw it as a resource. I didn't see it as doing anything bad or disrespectful. But uh, yeah, I made, made little lizard terrariums well, with plastic greenery. we're glad that you can be a little yeah. reflective. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Think so. about it. Well, you know, I don't know. So yeah, the, those plastic flowers are, are good for something, I guess. But Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, so when, when when is that celebration, Carmen? And can anybody come down and check it out? Oh, no. And we've had a lot of open advertisements in the paper, uh, but we didn't mean to do that. Actually, it's by invitation, oh. and it's going to be to our okay. funders, our volunteers, our our advisory board, uh, mm -hmm. uh, people that have provided uh, anything for us. But, Carmen, I think... Invited, huh? I th <laughs> thank you, dear. I think the... Uh, Point though being, are the Bisbee Bloomers still taking? Because uh, I know you have to sign up with them if you're going to do on do the tour part. So, the that part's open to the public. Yeah, that part is open to the public. That's one of their big money makers. For that, their mission is to beautify the city of Bisbee. But I mm -hmm. thought this was so cool that they would just do wildlife gardens because yeah. that's huge. That's you know, it's actually something just sorry that we because we're doing this with a town up in Connecticut uh, that actually is we're going to be doing planting there at the end of September where we're putting in a, a, a free garden next to a children's park and um, basically just approached the town and said hey do you have a place where we can put in a pollinator garden and like how about right here and we're like yeah that'd be great and put it in. so places in Arizona if you're in a town you know the thing that that I've learned is oftentimes You'll, you'll be surprised at how often you'll get a yes to something if you just ask. And so yeah. which is they say no, and okay, it takes 30 minutes of your time. But if you ask them and say yes, well, now you've got a place you can go do something and make an impact. And mm -hmm. like you were saying, Carmen, about this you know, place down there, you've created this amazing, beautiful place that I would like to come see at some point. Um, it, out well, of you're invited. Unclaimed. Yeah, so when is it? Well, you can't say it on the podcast, but I need you to email me when it is. So I can, oh, September 1st. <laughs> oh, you're going to get, okay. you should be getting an invitation. Well, I will be just up the road in Colorado, so that's not a far hop for me. I'll tell you what, you'd be, I'm impressed, okay? I'm impressed that we got this far. And and, and I got to tell you, Valerie's been huge. All, the Arizona Wildlife Federation has been so supportive. Uh, Keith, Ashley, uh, Trika, uh, Scott, uh Glenn Dickens, uh, I mean, everyone's on board, and which is which is wonderful because that's how you create another community to do this. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about already the future here in uh, here in Parks, oh, Arizona. Parks it's a small easy. community. I don't have the time right now. A young family and things are busy, but I can see I can see me getting there. <laughs> so I think I'm we're inspired. Be either the third or fourth town in Arizona, which 
kind of tells you a little bit about where you're going to see most of your wildlife gardens are going to be back east or on the coast when yeah. there's rain. You know, I mean, people love to, you know, desert landscape their yards oh, yeah. here, though. There's a lot of opportunity, I think. Um, let's step back a, a moment, though, and let's just take folks through the steps of how to do this for themselves in their own yard. And anybody can take that that likes. I'm going to jump in with just one thing is, is there's so many different ways. You could certainly be the granddaddy of them all doing the community-based one that Carmen is doing. But, you know, there's the program Sacred Ground where you could be doing this with churches. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly the schoolyard habitat program that's itself, but also as a part of eco-schools, it can be one of the the platforms if people are interested, you know, if the different schools participate in the eco schools program, also an NWF program. So I, I think that's one thing you can certainly do your home. Um, but, you know, these other opportunities are there, too. I'll, I'll add so, something really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it's worth doing the research in Arizona. I know this because I came across it for my own hometown, which is Long Beach, California. Uh, there are various city, county, and state programs that actually pay you to do these transformations. So like my, my hometown, my mom still lives in the same house I grew up in. The city of Long Beach pays $3 a square foot to take out your lawn and put in native plants uh, that are drought tolerant. Wow. Um, so you can have your entire lawn basically replaced for free. And they'll even give throw in a $1,500 design credit for, for homeowners. It takes three days to, to apply and get approval. So look and see, because wow. the resources might be there. It actually can save you both the front cost of doing it, but then think of all the ongoing savings that you get as well. So this isn't like a multi-thousand dollar investment necessarily somebody has to make to create a certified habitat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I learned that the hard way here recently. I, um, I'm on a Southwest facing slope, which should have never had the dense tree cover that it has now. And that was through mismanagement on our own part. Um, so I went through and cut a bunch of trees down, um, and I've made a giant mess. So one of the neighbors comes by, he's like, you know, the Ponderosa Fire Department, they have a grant that they can come out and do that for you. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> so, so yeah, there are opportunities out there to improve the habitat around your home. And, and I, I recommend from personal experience, look into those before you, before you start spending your own money or doing your own work. Right. Um, with, with that, Shubber, I want to give you an opportunity to say goodbye or add anything you'd like to add because I know you got a hard stop coming up here. And uh, Yeah, no, just yeah. Uh, love the work that you're all doing. Um, thank you for having me, obviously, uh, on this podcast, and I'm happy to, to chat with you all anytime. We are not currently in Arizona, but our plan is to expand there and ultimately the rest of the states. We're in about 38 states right now, um, but if you go to GardenForWildlife.com, there's a ton of resources there. It links back to the NWF uh, information as well certification. My final little plug is if you have friends or relatives who are east of the Rockies, um, please steer them our way because everybody should have some native plants in their yard, regardless of size, and it'll make an impact. And I know this from personal experience, so I, I highly recommend it. It is, it is it's just wonderful to see and everybody can make a small difference. Outstanding. Very nice to meet you. And I guess I'll see you on Friday, September 1st. <laughs> Well, fingers crossed, we'll make that work. Yes, so make sure to send me the invite. Uh, thank you all. Uh, Carmen, Valerie, great to meet you as well. And Michael, yes. of course, thank you for being the host.
Yeah. Thank you, Shubber. Thank I'll let you. you see yourself out, and Valerie and Carmen and I will drive this thing home. <laughs> All right. All right. So uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I, I do. I want to. I want to walk through listeners on just how easy it is to do this, um, and I'll try to walk through it, and you guys correct me where I'm wrong, if you will. Uh, but basically, you know, um, go go Google National Wildlife Federation Garden for Wildlife, and you'll you'll get yourself to the right place. And excuse me, see. Michael. Maybe, maybe how soon do we get to inter- How soon do we get to interrupt you? <laughs> oh, you can interrupt me anytime you like, Val. You go right I ahead. Okay. Did, started, did I already Val? mess up? You got part of a sentence. I would That's recommend okay. people go to the Arizona Wildlife Federation Board uh, Garden for Wildlife no. link that would then also link them to all the National Wildlife Federation resources. Thank you for that, Val. Okay. And, and just to clarify yeah. for folks, Arizona Wildlife Federation is an affiliate of the National Wildlife Federation. And there's a great deal of good that comes from that. I should say that we are independent of. We we actually were older then and, and we operate on our own. But being an affiliate of the National Wildlife Federation, um, well, Lord, I mean, National Wildlife Federation does a lot of great things for us that we benefit from, like Garden for Wildlife. Um, and also we get to help shape the direction and policy of the most powerful conservation organization in our nation. And and that's a big deal. So yeah, yeah, I'm really proud of it. But just, just to clarify where that relationship is for folks. So start over. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, So no, no, I'm probably going to mess this up anyway. Um, (laughs) Even though I went through the process and it was super simple, basically you're you're going to, you know, get this list of, of things that you can do in your yard um, that are going to benefit wildlife. And you need to do so many of those things in order to qualify um, for a certification for your property and get your sign that you get to put out. And, you know, and it's not just, I have a wildlife garden, right? But but I, I do this work all over my yard. I, I have bluebird boxes. I have bat boxes. I have rock piles. I have water features. I have salt licks. I got all this stuff. Um, but I also have this one little garden where, you know, I, I like to display my sign and, and you know, I, I really focus on, on wildlife there. But um, is that pretty much it? Did you go through, You do you register first, then work on your property? Do you work on your property first, then get registered? You should really have everything in place, like, um, okay. but not everyone does. But the thing is, if people are paying attention, they're getting it ready. Um, so mm-hmm. having, you know, water, having plants that have nectar or seeds or berries that are native, uh, places mm-hmm. for um, pollinators to raise their young, um, to have a courtship. Uh, not using chemicals, which undoes everything, and uh, making it sustainable so that it's that that it's low water use eventually. You know mm-hmm. that that they're native plants that they're going to self seed and become prolific. Um, yeah. What else, Val? Yeah. Well, I, and I think because you know it's a very scalable process uh, that you know, has those requirements of food, water, cover, raise young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there, it can be extremely minimal and simple. Uh, You know, one of the things that may work, say with that balcony 
setting is the idea of having a few uh, pollen, you know, flowering plants that would be there. They're going to provide both cover and food. Uh, and um, then if you're trying to supply available free water, I like to use the term free water when it's open, is maybe you have a little uh, butterfly puddling thing. You just got a, a little saucer with some rocks where butterflies can stand on the little rocks and, you know, in, enjoy a little puddling or muddling. I forget which they what they do there, but one of the others. And I want to mention in particular that I think there's things that still need to be refined within the national program of how it applies to, to Arizona. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think you should have a requirement to supply free water if your interest is in attracting, you know, true desert species, because almost all reptiles don't need water. Um, mm -hmm. Birds like the, um, um, not yellow bill, the roadrunner doesn't need to drink mm -hmm. water. Mammals like uh, kangaroo rats don't need to drink water. They get what's called metabolic water. All the water they need comes from the food they eat. So it's it's yeah, an interesting thing when you're looking at refining this for Arizona. And then, like Carmen said, really that very, very important piece is that sustainability over a long time term. So mm -hmm. it should be where nature is getting in there and going to take its course and provide these things that you've started. So, and right. it's, you know, it's an easy one page sheet. I don't know if that's something with your podcast that you could, you know, include a link to the application form. Oh, absolutely. I might will do be that. a, a good way to have us take this from verbal to written. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, here's a kind of an incidental, um, something that happens um, that turns out really wonderful, but it's not planned, is how people start paying attention to what's coming in their yards. I don't know how many people I've had tell me, ever since I put the sign up, I'm getting more pollinators, like the sign's inviting them, not. <laughs> it's because they're paying attention. And, and then yeah. neighbors are talking, like, I have this, I have that, or what are you doing, we're black. I mean, there's a dialogue that happens with neighbors. And it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sustainability piece is something I need to work on here. Um, Cause you know, I've been keep complaining about how I didn't get to my garden this year. Well, that wouldn't be a problem if it was a stand sustainable garden. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do have, I have native irises um, and I've also got domestic, I guess is what I would call them. Irises, which are giant, you know, and I had some bloom and they were beautiful this year, big purple irises, but um, I might give them a pass just because I feel like you can, you can find irises in like you know, homesteads where everything is gone, but a few rocks of a foundation and you'll still yeah. have some irises pop up in the spring, you know? So I, I feel like they kind of earn their place and they don't spread. They don't become invasive. So I think I'm going to keep my irises. They've been here a long time, but beyond that, I'm going to work on native plants that continue to come back year, year after year on their own. And I love that, Michael, because we're not in demanding anyone be purist here, you right. know, and I think Schubert kind of alluded to that when he talked about people that still had it relatively manicured. At the same time, mm -hmm. Carmen's right. They're emphasizing, you know, don't break up your leaves. That's, you know, you're getting, you know, so there's, it's scalable and it's also you're 
the little you're doing or the most you're doing, you're doing something. Yeah. Okay. So, and I, I like that Carmen's talked about because most of the time, I think anybody who would get a piece of paper that has, here's what we're talking about, look at their yard and they already have all the things met. It's just, they never really looked at it from that lens before. And and when they do look at it from that lens, it changes everything. And then they're much more attentive. Yeah. 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 It's exciting. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a guy who primarily hunts and fishes. I mean, those are my, I I mean, don't misunderstand. I I'm interested and have been involved in all aspects of wildlife throughout my entire life, but this is what I do. I hunt and fish, but boy, do I get excited about attracting wildlife to my yard. (laughs) When I get a new bird species in my yard, I mean, it's like the best day ever for me. You know, it goes on the list and I'm just celebrating all day long. Absolutely. So you don't, you don't have to be. <laughs> this is something everyone can do and anyone can do. And it's huge because we've had so much fragmentation of our, our lands that you can actually build corridors if we get enough neighbors involved where there's a little smorgasbord to go yeah. from one plant to the next. Um, yeah. We can all do something. Sure. Yeah, my my next big step I'm excited about, which probably won't happen until next year, as soon as I get the trees thinned out to where I think they should be and um, the mess that I've made cleaned up, uh, I want to put some fire. I have one acre and and I'd like to burn it and see what kind of native grasses I get back Mm -hmm. and things like that. Which, of course, can be extremely dangerous up here. It has to be done correctly. Carmen can uh, tell you all about that. And I I really appreciate her talking about Firewise. Yeah. Be, mm-hmm. You know, fire the plants and, you know, looking at some of these things, you know, nothing is cut and dried black and white. You know, you're putting in shrubs and plants. You're going to want to be aware that there may be a consequence regarding wildfire. So are there decisions you're making within that? So, you know, it's scalable. It's adaptable. It's doesn't be purist you're you're any little bit that you can do and yeah when i mean this morning i had verdans singing at me and morning doves fluttering off you know and i live in the middle of a very urban setting in a very dry and uh some people consider desolate i think it's lovely if you like the color brown (laughs) so anyway let me put on that (laughs) <laughs> Yuma is funny like that. It's, you know, to an outsider's perspective, I mean, it's neat. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I, I look at everything through the natural history lens, you know, and you guys have sand dunes and all this cool stuff. But but to a person that doesn't think the way I think they might look at Yuma as a very desolate place. And it is far and out of the way. Yeah. But Yuma, the folks that live in Yuma are very proud yeah. of, of where they live. And I, oh, I just yeah. think that's wonderful. You know, uh, Mike, I spent probably about 10 days up in the Kofa wilderness. Um, mm-hmm. and, oh, the Kofas are beautiful. And, and they're beautiful. And, you know, you're surrounded by gravel, natural gravel and its natural habitat or whatever. But at night it would get so cold. And then in the morning, the dew would come out and then the creosol. And, you know, so you don't have a whole lot of choices. But the ones you do, boy, it, really it nice. green and and the fragrance just overtaking you. So, yeah, 
Well, ladies, what have we left out here if we want to give folks a good understanding of the Garden for Wildlife? Anything? I can't think of anything that we should probably have addressed, like as far as um, having what are future options. Well, actually, I'm teaching gardening for wildlife at Bow this September. Uh, and I, I will generally see you there. doing that once or twice a year. Um, mm -hmm. But I think our website has some great things because, as I said, there's a, adaptations we need to take to what's been developed back east to how it applies to us. So I okay. would recommend, you know, some of the interpretations we've done help to make it more local. You mm -hmm. talked about having maybe some pictures of your place. Maybe Carmen has pictures of her place with your, if you don't mind, Michael, something like adding a link because people may not have a view. You know, it's why I brought up, for example, about skyscrapers being peregrine. Mm -hmm. You may not think it, you're going to have it as easy, but, you know, we could show pictures of homes and these are certified wildlife habitat and they look just like yours you know what i'm saying kind of thing some pictures of what we're yeah. talking about well i gotta get all these trees cleaned up before i can take any okay pictures okay of my heart. It's a mess, <laughs> I what i failed to mention is that the name of our organization here in bisbee was is project wildlife bisbee and i thought that might be important to mention and that anyone can do this and, and why wouldn't you do it? Because it's good for everyone. It's the Maslow's sure. hierarchy of needs for pollinators and humans, you know, shelter, food, um, water, warmth. Um, we're all the same. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, I'm certainly inspired. Um, you know, as soon as I get my my own little property squared away, I'm, I'm going to start thinking about taking it to the community level here. It might be a little while, but I'll get there. And Michael, we did it. Yay. We've been talking about this a while. Thank you. All right. Oh, well, thank you two for being here. Yeah, Michael, I think this little podcast is huge. This is wonderful. This is, this <laughs> well, is I certainly hope people enjoy it and yeah. uh, and it helps get the word out there because I enjoy it. And, yeah, uh, I know and you're doing an too. awesome job and you're getting popular. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> well, all right. Thank you two for being here. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll I'm sure I'll see you both down the road somewhere. Hopefully in all right. September, some one of those events. So we'll see you. Uh, October. Well, we will be hooking up again, so you're not in yeah. the clear. I, I <laughs> hope so. All right. I'm turning this thing off. All right. Thanks, Thank ladies. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode on Gardening for Wildlife, um, and I hope it inspired you to get out there and, and make your property uh, more, more conducive to wildlife. Uh, create better habitat. Um, you know, the wild spaces are not getting any larger. It's important that we work on our, our urban areas, um, you know, whether like they talked about, whether it's an apartment balcony or like my one acre lot here, here on the edge of the forest. Um, I think it's important. Uh, I think it brings value uh, to not only the wildlife, uh, but to us as well. You know, I think I don't think, I know that people's lives are enriched when they share them 
in close proximity with wildlife with a few exceptions there of course but um yeah get out there get to work on your property get registered with the national wildlife federation i'll have a link below where you can do that and uh yeah get that garden for wildlife sign when you get everything set up and proudly display it right out in the front of your property just like i do i take a lot of pride in this stuff and it is a lot of fun so in the meantime, uh, know that this podcast is made possible by the Arizona Wildlife Federation. The Arizona Wildlife Federation is 100 years old this year, 100 years of conservation. And you can reach out to me at podcast at azwildlife.org. And I'll take your comments, your questions, your criticisms. I won't just take them. I will enjoy them and I will appreciate them and I will reply. So thank you for listening and we will see you on the next show.